Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Turns out, food is still a complicated topic. While we all know we need to eat to survive, how we should be eating and what we should be eating especially if we're talking about how to eat for optimal performance, well, there are a lot of very strong and wide-ranging opinions out there still. The fields of nutrition and diet are massive topics, as are all of the related issues surrounding them. So today, we are talking with Kylie Van Horn, who is a registered dietitian nutritionist and who writes a column for Trail Runner magazine called Ask the RDN. I talked to Kylie about her own running background and what led her to a career in nutrition. And then I asked her questions to try to get a general state of the union about where we are with respect to all of the various diets out there, related issues of whether certain diets are helping or hurting training recovery. We touch on the topic of endurance athletes and eating disorders and more. Now again, my primary interest in this conversation was to get a survey of the current landscape here at the tail end of this decade, but as you will see, every single topic that Kylie and I discuss is deserving of its own multi-episode series. But for now, I wanted to resist the temptation to get too deep into the weeds, and I think Kylie does a great job of showing us the big picture. And of course, from here, there will be lots of opportunities in the future to drill down on specific issues. And so, for our last episode of Off the Couch in 2019, I am very happy to be able to share my conversation with Kylie Van Horn. So, Happy New Year, and here we go. Well, Kylie, how are you today, and where are you today? I am great. I am in Carbondale, Colorado, so near Aspen. Uh, it is freezing outside, so I haven't gone out, but I think I'm going to go do a little skate ski later and uh, get out there and enjoy it. Nice. Now, is Carbondale home for you? It is home or has been home for the last five years, and before that, I was in Crested Butte, actually. Crested Butte. I've heard of that place. <laughs> So I was there with my husband too for two years. We lived there, uh, and we met in Boulder. So we were in Boulder for a couple years, and then made the trek to Crested Butte, and was there a couple years, and lived the dream, and then moved <laughs> over to Carbondale. <laughs> well, I won't take offense that you know that's right about what I was coming in, and uh, so I, I'm gonna you know I hope you didn't leave because I, you're like oh this one guy's coming here, so it's probably time for us to bail. <laughs> No, no, definitely not. Okay. You're, you're good. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Tell us a bit more about your background. Where did you grow up? What sports were you into, if any? Did you love the cello? Was that your thing? What, what, what were you about growing up? So I'm actually from a small like farm area in South Central Pennsylvania near Gettysburg. Um, so not a ton to do around there. So I, I actually did play a number of different sports. Um, I was, I played ice hockey on an all guys team. I also played soccer. And then uh, I got into running when I was 10 years old. My dad is a big runner and he was actually an Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon. So I used to, yeah, I used to go around following him to races and whatnot. So eventually I think I was around 10 or 11 I started doing some little mile races and those sorts of things and, and then kind of followed in my dad's footsteps, I guess. Wow. So that was at 10 you started. Yeah, I've been running a very long time. <laughs> so I started when I was really young 
And uh, in that area, actually, there's a good running community. So it was kind of fun. They have a lot of fun run uh, races, cross country races in the summer. And so it was really fun. A lot of kids actually participated in it. And then it comes time to go to college. Where do you go and, and what are what are the like, I want, like, let's kind of slide a little bit into the, you know, activities you were into in, in college and post-college and what you were studying. Yeah, so I attended the University of Richmond in Virginia and I ran track and co- cross country there on a scholarship. Uh, so my schedule in college was pretty regimented. Um, I was also a pre-veterinary major, so for the longest time, I, like every five-year-old kid, wanted to be a veterinarian, <laughs> and I kind of followed that dream, I guess, uh, through my, my first undergrad degree, and uh, put a lot of pressure on myself to try to get good grades and run well and get experience, all to try and get into veterinary school. And then once I graduated, I actually decided that I didn't want to go to veterinary school. (laughs) Kind of your your typical uh, college student, right? You think you know what you want to do, and then you decide something different. Um, I realized that I have a strong emotional attachment to animals, and I didn't know if I could actually handle that when I, if I would go into practice. So that hesitation right there was big enough for me to say, you know, I can't do this right now. Um, And it also could have been, you know, I put so much pressure on myself at Richmond that I decided, you know, I needed a little bit of a break. Um, So then I actually college coached at UNC Charlotte for a year. I was a track and cross country coach there. Right after you wrapped up your own undergrad. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, so I was an assistant coach there, so I wasn't the head coach, but it was very interesting because I, some of the kids I ran against, I was actually coaching for then, right after I graduated, so that was a, it was definitely an interesting experience, it was not for me, college coaching, I have a huge amount of respect for college coaches because they put a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice into into that profession Uh, and it was just too much travel and and not enough um i wanted to be kind of in one place Hmm. so for me it just wasn't a good fit Hmm. so decided to leave the south and and went west and moved to colorado then so i was only in the south for like a year (laughs) and then i moved to colorado because one of my best friends from college was from denver and i used to go visit her in the summer so i was like oh well i'm moving west So I just like picked up everything and went west. Um, And then I have never looked back. Uh, I actually, I worked for World Triathlon Corporation. And so I put on triathlons uh, all over the U.S. Um, And at that time, I also was trying to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon. Uh, so I, I focused a lot at that time on things that I neglected in college. So I didn't pay attention a lot to my nutrition in college, the sleep thing. I didn't really know what sleep was that much. (laughs) Um, Uh So the, and then nutrition piece was really fascinating for me. And the more I looked into it, I I realized there's a program down in uh, Denver at Metro State University. They were, they actually had just started a nutrition program I think it was around 2009, 2008. Um, and so I decided that I was going to go back to school in 2011 and did nutrition. And I actually had a season of eligibility for track and cross country. So I used that eligibility as, a, as an older person <laughs> and, and ran really well uh, in Division Two. So I got kind of a second chance at running in college. Uh, My first time running in college, I didn't run as well as I thought I should have. And probably because of all of those things, the stress, the lack of sleep, not great nutrition. Um, But then my second go around, I I was focused more on those things and, and ended up running really well. 
So that I, I actually got my second shot at running in college, which was kind of fun. So what event in particular was your, I mean, you were talking about long distance, but your quote unquote first go around and then second, it sounds to me like you were always doing longer distance events. Is that fair? Yeah, I did the 5K and 10K in college and then transitioned to the marathon after college. Um, I would say probably a lot of college students that run, you know, 5K, 10K, they transition to the marathon (laughs) or they go into ultra running. Um, I currently am doing trail running now, mostly due to my husband. He, he's a endurance athlete and I kind of transitioned over to the trail side of things and I love it. So I actually can't see myself going back to road running. From the mean streets of Pennsylvania to the, to the trails of Carbondale, this has been quite the journey. Just quickly, and I mean, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I, I am curious We've had a number of conversations on Off the Couch where, and it's really interesting to me, especially given that you started running at 10, whether that time running, you said it, you weren't performing at the level that you wanted to, but I'm curious with this like relationship with running, has it always been like a pretty positive one or have you experienced those moments of like flat burnout or I'm done with this? I think... I, I really enjoyed running in high school, but I really focused on trying to get a scholarship as well. So I think that that was, that kind of tainted my running a little bit. I put so much pressure on myself to run certain times so I could get a scholarship. And then once you get that scholarship, then you have to go and actually perform at a high collegiate level, you know, division one running is it's really hard. Um, and I felt like every day I was literally going out and almost racing every day because I didn't know how to run easy. I didn't know how to recover. And, but all of your teammates, they're also doing the same thing. So, uh, if you can survive, that's kind of how I look at it. If you can survive, uh, you might actually perform well or okay, but for me, I didn't feel like I thrived well in that environment. And again, it could have been all those other things that I wasn't doing and the pressure I put on myself for school. But that in itself um, kind of made me uh, not hate running, but I just felt like it was more of a job. Um, and so after I graduated from Richmond, I kind of, I ran, but I didn't, really race that much when I was in Charlotte. Um, And it wasn't really until I moved to Boulder and I started running more for myself and running more for fun. And I met a lot of people through running there that I kind of uh, took a little bit different look at running and, and I was running more for fun again. And then I, and I learned how to recover. And then when I went to Metro State and ran again, I actually used what I had been doing, you know, resting, recovering, all that kind of stuff and ended up running really well and, and felt really positively about my running. And at Metro State, it, it was a, you know, I'm not saying that it wasn't a serious program, but it wasn't everyone racing each other every day. So I actually felt like it was a little bit more relaxed environment, which I thrived better in. Um, and then now the transition to trails, I absolutely love the trail running and ultra running community, everyone. Um, I just think there's people use it in different ways, you know, use running in a different way. Almost they are working towards goals, but I find a lot of trail runners are going out for, you know, just to enjoy nature. Everyone has their reasons and and it's just more of a, relaxed environment in a way, which I find to be really not, it's almost therapeutic, I guess. Um, and, and so, you know, for me, that tends to be, uh, where I thrive a little bit more is when I am not like, you know, like very regimented. So maybe this is a bad next question, given that you just said you're kind of enjoying the less regimented life. But um, 
we're having a lot of conversations with different people at Blister about goals for 2020 and sort of New Year's resolutions. Have you been thinking about, do you already have kind of mapped out perhaps some running events or things like that that you are intending to participate in in 2020? Yeah, and I I actually don't think that's a bad question. Um, You know, when I say regimented, I I do actually, you know, I like to follow a training plan and do that sort of thing. But I think it's when you get so focused on your training and, and not enjoying that training process or not enjoying training for races where that's because that's where it becomes an issue, you know? (laughs) And, (laughs) um, so I, I actually had a serious foot surgery about three years ago. Um, they liken it to an ACL repair of the big toe. Oh, wow. So (laughs) it was a, a, a two year recovery process. And so last year was kind of my first year getting back into running Um, and I, and actually David Roach is my coach and Uh he's really good, good at kind of, um, bringing people back from injuries in a way that is really balanced. You know, you're not throwing someone in and, and just, you know, overtraining and injuring yourself again. Um, so I started, you know, doing a few races this past year. And then uh, was able to actually put together a full year of training, which has been really great. Um, And so next year, yeah, I do actually have goals for myself. And I really want to try to, I've never actually done a 50K race. So I can't necessarily say that I'm an ultra runner, um, I guess, until I do a 50K Although I did do the Moab Trail Marathon recently, so so that's kind of close, I guess. Um, so I'm planning on doing some uh, more, uh, I guess, technical races. Um, I'd like to do Broken Arrow in California and try to do Speed Goat this year. Um, and, and my husband is actually going to be racing the CCC race over in Europe. Um, so I might actually try and do a race over in Switzerland to kind of get a taste of the European racing. So I, I do have some fun goals for myself, you know. Um, and then, you know, I might throw in a, um, like, a little uphill or a schemo uphill or something, you know, because in the winter, living in the mountains, you kind of have to be a little bit adaptable. You know, it's it's really hard living in places like, Gunnison, Crested Butte, Aspen, uh, Carbondale in the winter because it can be a really long, harsh winter um, running outside every day. And, you know, sometimes I, I feel like it's good to just go and do a skate ski or go and do some schemo or something like that as that alternative form of training. And so it, it gives you a little bit of break and it's, and it's fun. Well, you know, Kylie, you you may have heard of a little race called the Grand Traverse, and I think you should probably do it this year, and then you can come back to CB and we can hang out in CB. So that's that's what I think. Just <laughs> well, just throw it I, out actually, there. Actually, I've done the Grand Traverse before. <laughs> I, I kind so. of figured. I kind of figured. I actually did it with my husband. I also so kind of figured. <laughs> interesting experience. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, will, will, um, would you would you do it again with your husband? Can no, the relationship? I, would not. <laughs> okay. I love my husband, but we we're both uh, when we race, we are competitive. But you know, he's actually you know on the schemo side of things, he is a much better athlete than I am. So going out and doing schemo racing with somebody that's slower than you might not necessarily be the best idea. Got it. Got it. Um, so yeah, me on a tow rope with him. I mean, I survived, but, uh, it wasn't necessarily pretty. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, uh, this is great. Um, well, that's a very helpful context in terms of your background and kind of what you're up to today on your own running stuff and how you're approaching this and what you're into and looking forward to. 
Talk to me a little bit now on the nutrition side of things. Tell me what your sort of life looks like in that front. What kind of folks you are working with? What are you doing in, say, the broader discipline of nutrition? What does life look like right now? Yeah, so I actually just became a dietitian about a year and a half ago, and I decided to just jump into starting my own business. And so I, I took the leap and, and started my own sports nutrition business. And um, at the same time, I also have been working a little bit in the clinical nutrition side of things. So I work a little bit uh, at a hospital here in town. Um, and so I kind of balance between working with, you know, medical nutrition therapy patients and doing the, the sports nutrition side of things. Um, a, a lot of my sports nutrition clients are from all, all over the U.S. Um, so I, I actually partner with some post-collegiate running groups on the front range. Um, I, I uh, partner with a high school group on the front range some triathlon groups as well across the U.S. So um, I work a lot with, you know, a number of different endurance athletes is mostly my focus. And when you talk about working on the clinical side of things, <laughs> which group would you say is more challenging? Working with athletes on this, these areas of nutrition or working with sort of what we might call the general public? Uh, definitely the general public. Okay. <laughs> so, and that mostly comes down to um, motivation and willingness to actually want to make changes. You know, oftentimes when people are in the hospital, they're sick. Uh, they don't necessarily want to be listening to anyone about their diet at that time. Um, so it can go either way as to whether they really want to, to be talking to you or not. And so I think that's a really hard thing, you know. Um, oftentimes our goals in the hospital are a little bit different, you know, than, than say an outpatient setting or in the sports nutrition world. A lot of those sports nutrition clients that I work with, they're coming to me because they want to try and make these changes to help with their, improve their performance. What would you say about the kind of current landscape in terms of diet and nutrition? Like, do you think we're still in a time where we're seeing like a proliferation of more and more and more, I'm gonna use a really pejorative term, but like fad diets, or are people getting a little more like, okay, well, there's kind of four, you know what I mean? And things are actually contracting. Where are we right now? I think it kind of goes in a cyclical nature, to be honest with you. Um, I think fad diets have, have long been a thing. And the reason for that being is because a lot of people want that magic thing that will fix them. They want their problems to be solved. And if there's a fad diet, then that answers their, their problem and, and it could be a quick fix for them. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that all of these diets or eating patterns are quick fixes, but some of them I think are. And, and the reason why they work for certain people is because they're taking out a lot of the, the things that they might have been eating before that weren't the best. And I think that's why a lot of them work. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think honestly, you know, if we look at um, the Adkins diet, it's kind of that was kind of the old uh, keto in a way. So, um, so I think we kind of go in a circle almost. Um, yes, there might be the evolution of some new dietary patterns, but at the same time, I, I do think we're continually, uh, comes out with new different types of fad diets with maybe a different name than it was before. In your work with athletes right now, what diet or is there a diet that you are having more athletes coming to you and asking you about? Yeah, I definitely, and this has been kind of a trend for, you know, since I started working as a dietitian, maybe a year and a half, 
and continues to be is the low carb, high fat diet. Um, and so, you know, very similar, there, there's kind of a discrepancy as to whether, you know, we call keto, uh, is there a difference between keto and low carb, high fat? I kind of just lump them into one thing, I guess, when we're talking about keto versus low carb, high fat, if you want to get technical, keto is typically, you know, below 50 grams of carbohydrates per day, and then you have to limit your protein as well. So I won't get into all the nuances of it, but um, low carb, high fat for endurance athletes, I think it's been kind of um, maybe in the media a little bit more. um, And that's why people are asking about it. Uh, There have been a few studies that have come out and, and it continues to kind of, be mixed results as to, um, you know, whether it offers a performance benefit or not. And I think that the main thing that the main takeaway is for most people, I don't think that it is a a good diet for people to be on um, because it's very restrictive, again, as most bad diets are. Um, And then also, it, you know, it's just, it's really hard to kind of make sure that you're getting in, you still need to get in some carbohydrates if you're an endurance athlete to be able to recover from your workouts and recover from your training. And if you're not doing that correctly, it can really affect your training. And even the guys that are doing this low carb, high fat diet successfully, you know, Zach Bitter, Jeff Browning, they strategically utilize carbohydrates in their training to be able to recover. Um, so I, I did do a, a trail runner magazine article and I interviewed Jeff Browning and, and he made it clear, you know, I do utilize some carbohydrates in my training strategically to be able to recover. And I also use car- carbohydrates in my races as well. And so I think that's important for people to understand that, they're not just going out and saying, I'm not having a single carbohydrate. Um, so if, if people don't understand how that diet works and how, how to do that diet properly, then it can really hurt their performance. And so I think, you know, just having a general more balanced approach to your eating, um, you know, it's not necessarily sexy or sexy nutrition, but I think that it, it it honestly works a little bit better for most people. Before we started taping, you know, you and I were talking uh, about some of these issues. And I think, like, again, this just the topic of nutrition is such a massive topic. And, and in a lot of ways, still, I feel like a black box. And we are still learning a lot. And there's there is a rightful amount of like experimentation going on, I think. And then there's always like just the individual factor, right? Like even if studies and science are all showing that something in general might be beneficial, it's like, well, cool. How does that factor in for the, like you, for you as an individual, as opposed to me? And as we're trying to pay attention, perhaps to certain performance metrics and measures, So obviously we're in very complicated territory here and to turn this not into a thousand hour conversation, would you agree with this statement that again, a Zach Bitter, right? Who, you know, is doing something say very much in the school of keto or something like keto, or you have vegan diets or paleo, et cetera, et cetera. Would you agree with the statement that in general, a person can perform at a very high level on a broad range of these diets if, if, if they do those things the right way and with a decent amount of intentionality. Yeah, and I think um, that there is actually a caveat to that as well because yes, while I agree, if you, if you are doing these, uh, eating patterns correctly, uh, you can probably succeed on them. But I also think it depends on what 
endurance sport you're doing, um, we have to look at that. You know, if you're running a marathon, the low carb, high fat diet is not going to be the best choice for you. Um, we know that over 70% of your VO2 max, you need to have carbohydrates coming in and you need to be make sure that you are properly recovering and all of that. So, you know, it, it depends, I think, on what sport you're doing as well. So I come to you and I'm like, hey, I'm going to get into marathon running and I want to perform at my absolute best, me personally. And then you would then say, okay, well, I maybe would prefer to rule out or cross off a couple of these style of diets if that's really the goal. Is that fair? Yeah. Then there's, I guess, the question of as an individual, I mean, I guess in theory, I could come as a blank slate and be like, I want to really maximize my 50K times and you know perform at the highest level I can. So I'm open to going on a vegan diet or a high carb diet or or paleo. Like, I don't care, Kylie. You just tell me. I don't imagine very often, but please correct me if I'm wrong, you might be working with someone across a super broad spectrum of potential ways to eat because they might be coming with certain ethics in mind or just certain things where they're like, I love bacon and I'm not giving it up. So we're going to build whatever we do. That's going to be incorporated. Talk to me a little bit about like those dynamics and how that works. Yeah. And I think that part of working with someone that's a dietitian, um, it, why that's beneficial is because we can get into those other things like, you know, what is your lifestyle outside of your training? You know, what's your job like? What's your schedule like? Um, you know, do you have these certain things that you can't eat? You know, if you do have a food intolerance or something or a food allergy. Um, so, so at that point, then we can work together to try and maybe come up with the best eating pattern for you. You know, I, if someone would come to me and say, oh, what is the, the best diet that I need to be on for performance? And I, and they say, you know, I'm a really busy person outside of my training. I work a lot. I don't have a lot of time to prep my food. Then, you know, the vegan diet might not be the best choice for them. Um, so we, I really think that we can all agree less processed foods are going to be better choices and eating more fruits and vegetables is always a good choice. And then, you know, where are we getting our protein sources from? So um, in this person's case that might be very busy, it might be easier for them to meet their protein needs with, you know, meat sources um, and, and, you know, lean meat sources and that sort of thing. So I think that considering all of those things outside of the just, you know, what diet should I be on is really important when trying to work with someone. Um, and so you can go online and read all these things about what all these different diets and here's a diet plan and all of that. But that doesn't take into account all of those personal things that might be going on. So there's a lot of interesting variables, right? When we're again, we're just talking about what should I, what should I be eating and everybody listening to this, what every one of us should be eating to properly fuel the specific activities or, you know, things that we're trying to perform at a, at a high level in. So one you just mentioned is like, what's, what does the rest of your life look like? Are you too busy to take the time to prepare food? But I guess I want to, I wonder how much you try to, or do you think we can isolate, you know, you mentioned a while back, like when you were an undergrad and a collegiate runner, you weren't sleeping that much. How would you think about that variable versus the variable of what your diet looks like? Oh, I think it's a little bit hard to quantify in a way. And in a way, they're kind of interrelated. Uh, so sleep, if we're not getting enough sleep, they've shown that that can affect our hormones that affect appetite and fullness. And so, um, you know, in a way, they're interrelated uh, a bit. And so... 
I don't know if I would say maybe one is more important than the other. I do think it kind of goes along with all these little things that also affect your performance. You know, there's the one side of uh, performance is the training, but then there's all these other things that, um, you know, a lot of us hear that we should be doing, but don't always do them, you know? And as far as quantifying, like the percentage that diet makes or sleep makes on that, I'm not sure that I could do that. Um, but I, I do think that there is clear evidence that shows, you know, like getting a lack of sleep, you know, only getting five hours of sleep every night, that's going to affect your ability to recover. And, and um, you know, you might get injured more easily. Uh, you might get sick. And so, and then that can also affect the way that you're eating again with the appetite and fullness hormones. So um, I think, again, it, that can get a little complicated. Related issue. You recently wrote an article about fatigue and diet. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on those, again, very big and broad topics. Yeah, so I think um, one thing that you do have to consider is is if you're newer to your sport or whatnot, are you properly training in a way that you're able to recover and, again, not getting into this overtraining, uh, especially if you are more apt to doing more, more, more and not uh, allowing yourself to rest. I know there are certain people that have a propensity towards that and they think, oh, the more I do, the faster I'm going to get, but it doesn't, you know, it's not going to work that way. It doesn't, it's not that straightforward. Um, so I think that that is one thing that needs to be considered. Um, and when I wrote this column, actually, um, I take questions from the public and actually write for Trail Runner magazine and so this person actually said, you know, I have been working with a coach. I've been having balanced training and recovery. I take two days off a week. Do you think uh, my diet could be contributing to the fatigue I'm feeling? And so that was kind of the premise behind that um, column that I just wrote. And so if we know that for sure you're training, you're doing smart training and all the right things. Um, then we could look at the diet and, and there are some things that you need to consider with the diet itself. You know, are you actually getting in enough energy or enough food to support that training that you're doing? Um, or, you know, some people, they just have no clue and, and they're doing, you know, 80 miles a week or something. And they're, they're eating the same amount of food they were before. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm eating enough. But really they, they have no awareness um, and they, they just don't have that knowledge to know uh, how much they should be eating. And so that's one thing that, that can be an issue is kind of that we call it the relative energy deficiency. And so over time, if you're consistently not getting in enough um, food to support the training, that can affect, um, you know, your injury rates, your illness rates, um, all that sort of thing. Like you might not, if you don't get in enough carbohydrate, again, we can go back to, to not being able to fill those glycogen stores to power that exercise. Um, so, so that is one area that you can look at. Um, and then we also need to look at, are you getting in, in enough vitamins and minerals? And so, you know, you might be getting in enough energy, but do you have enough variety in your diet that you're getting in those important vitamins and minerals like, you know, vitamin C and iron and B12, um, those sorts of things. Um, and then you have to also consider, do you have an underlying medical condition? Maybe we can't rule that out either. Um, some people have thyroid issues that they're unaware of or developed later on. Um, so they, they need to make sure, you know, that they get regular blood work done and that sort of thing. It sounds silly again, or maybe not the most, um, sexy advice, but it, it is the reality that some people, they just, they don't think about those, those little things that actually could uh, be affecting their fatigue levels. On the question of 
of vitamin and vitamin deficiencies. Where are, where are we at? Where is consensus at about if we're concerned about those deficiencies? And, and I think a lot of us have reason to be. Where are we at in terms of best practices of if I need to boost, say, vitamin B12 levels or C levels, whatever? Should I just be going to the local drugstore and buying whatever on the shelf? So that that's definitely an area that I get asked about a lot. And I do have a pretty strong background in the supplement world, um, just from working at a natural food store for a while. But I think it's really important to remember that the FDA doesn't regulate the supplement industry very well. And so, um, you know, there are some things that you can do when you're trying to choose a supplement to make sure that you're at least trying to get a, a better product. Um, and I think what we need to look for, remember, are, you know, if a supplement has a USP label or a certified for sport label, um, those extra labeling practices, they actually do, the company goes the extra mile to get additional testing done and has, has to maintain certain standards um, in order to keep that labeling. So it's still not 100% perfection. You know, there, there still could be some contamination in that supplement. But I think if we are going to supplement, then why not try and utilize that little bit of extra third-party certification type of thing um, when we are choosing our supplements? Um, and, and then the other thing, to make sure that you're aware of is that you need to be reading the label of the supplement. So in the other ingredients, what are those other ingredients that that company is adding into that supplement? You know? So like I actually do on my Instagram page every week, I do a what's in your supplement feature. And so I will take a supplement off the shelf, maybe from city market, maybe from somewhere else. And I will take a picture of the front and then the side label and I'll kind of pick apart that supplement a little bit and, and say, you know, do we want these artificial colorings in our supplement? Do we, what is this thing that's in our supplement? Um, if it's a fish oil supplement, you know, does it have the right amount of EPA and DHA in it? So, um, you know, I think having that, little going that little extra mile especially when choosing supplements is really important let's say somebody's listening to this and let's say they aren't a competitive runner but maybe still you know is kind of uh, in a way that would hopefully seem kind of normal like I'd like to keep getting better, you know, I'd like to improve my fitness in the next marathon or 50K or 10K that I run. I'd love to see if I could PR, but these aren't, um, these aren't professional athletes. If they're sitting there thinking, I feel pretty good. I'm not able to identify a clear warning signal or something, right? How would you encourage somebody to think about whether or not they should be thinking about tweaking their dietary habits. So I think, again, that's the advantage of working one-on-one -on -one with someone is that you have them give you a pretty detailed recall of what they're currently doing. And then if you have somebody that's a professional looking at that from that outside perspective, you know, is that the best way of eating for that person to maximize their, you know, recovery and all of that sort of thing? You know, even if somebody isn't a professional athlete, we still want them to not get injured. We don't want them to get sick. I mean, who really likes those things? So, so looking at the diet closer, I think, is really important. And I oftentimes will have people do um, you know, a, a really detailed food recall and, and have it, you know, put into a system that, you know, analyzes that a little bit closer for vitamins, minerals. Um, and then we look at kind of like their pattern of eating and all of that. And so, yes, it is like, for some people, it might be too meticulous. But if you're really looking for 
um, you know, health to, to include health outcomes and performance outcomes and prevent these injuries and illnesses, I think it's important to look a little bit closer sometimes at our, at our eating patterns. Um, and so I would say, you know, maybe some people I've had people come to me and we look at it and there's not a lot that they really can maybe improve upon. And so, but the fact is they, they having that close look at their diet and having someone else tell them, okay, yeah, you know, this looks really good. Maybe you could tweak it a little bit in this way. That's reassuring to them. So I think even just that is really helpful to people to know, okay, like I'm doing the right thing. This is a good thing. Or maybe I'm not, maybe I just need to change a few things here or there. So I think that is, um, you know, the way that people that uh, they're training and, and they think that they're eating pretty well to support their training. I think that is the advantage to kind of looking at it a little bit closer either identify areas you're missing or just get confirmation that like, yep, you're on a pretty solid track here. Exactly. You know, there, I think in the world of nutrition, there's always going to be like this diet right now is blowing up in terms of interest and coverage because a new book came out or a new film came out or things like that. Are there any issues that, maybe they aren't the most high profile things, you know, at the moment, but that, that you just wish you're like, okay, everybody's over here reading this book about this diet or this new study. I wish people would just be paying more attention to less sexy issue blank. Yeah. I think, um, we all, well, most of us lead a pretty busy lifestyle and I think that one of the most common things that I see and I wish people spent more time on was uh, planning a little bit and taking, you know, 15, 20 minutes that you might be on like social media or watching TV and planning out, you know, one to two snacks for the week that would be healthy options or, you know, a couple of dinners that might be easy rather than just flying by the seat of your pants all the time. Um, and I think by doing that, that can actually really benefit people with their recovery, with their, you know, getting in enough of all the things they need to be getting in. Um, because when we're so busy and, and unprepared, that's oftentimes when I see people reaching for things that, you know, might not be the best choice to support their training or, you know, you're not getting in enough vitamins and minerals and that sort of thing. So I would say just taking a little time to plan. Uh, and, and also you can get having some ideas as well. So maybe doing a little um, research, like what are a couple of things that I could, could make that would be easy. It doesn't have to be every night you're cooking for two hours, <laughs> It's, you know, if you have a couple cookbooks or a couple, um, you know, things online, places you go to find recipes, that's also really beneficial. Um, I'm not sure your thoughts on that, but. We've been kind of talking or sort of operating on an assumption here that like our conversation, my questions are kind of assuming people that have a relatively a uh, healthy relationship to food and eating. But that leaves out a pretty significant area of like the whole question of eating disorders and mental health issues and food, which is obviously a very significant thing. From your vantage point, what do you think is important for some of us to know who maybe are lucky enough to not be struggling with certain eating disorders or what would be important to be said to some folks who are maybe having some struggles related to these issues around food? I think, um, you know, a lot, it, it, it kind of gets a little bit complicated when you're looking at changing your diet for performance, or I get a lot of people that really want to lose weight to get faster and I think that we need to keep in mind 
that getting really restrictive and getting obsessive about our diets isn't always the best for our mental health. And I think food and our emotions are really closely intertwined. And so I do work with a lot of people that, you know, they know a lot about nutrition. They, they know what they should be doing, but they don't have a healthy relationship with food. And they also, they don't know how to, you know, apply some of those things that they, they know because they have these other things going on in their life that are preventing them from making some of the changes that they want to make. And so I think it's really important that we're okay with talking about some of these other things that might be going on in our life and, and being open um, to being able to express that. Um, and I, uh, you know, with a lot of people that I work with, I make sure that that area, I guess the mental health area is covered, you know, Therapy might not work for everyone, but it is an option as well. So especially with my disordered eating and eating disorder clients, I honestly don't take on any of those clients unless they have a therapist that they're working with as well. Um, because I think that's really important to be able to even make progress. Um, so, you know, it it is something that I think more and more it's being talked about in the, in the media a little bit more, especially with, with um, Mary Kane coming out um, about, you know, that relationship there with Alberto Salazar and how, you know, coaches putting pressure on their athletes to continue to lose weight, to get faster. Um, I think these mess, those kind of messages, they, they don't set people up for, um, having a healthy relationship with food. Um, the media too, you know, like any kind of media messages, it's a lot of uh, diet culture and you should look a certain way, that sort of thing. And so we're bombarded with that all the time in social media and, you know, on the TV. Um, so it's no wonder a lot of people end up uh, having, again, this unhealthy relationship with food. So, again, I think it's important just to make sure that we're honest with ourselves and we're open and willing to talk about, um, you know, emotional struggles that we might have. It's okay, you know, if you're not okay, you can talk to someone about it. Um, and, you know, my husband actually, uh, over in this valley, he has been really open and working hard to talk about his eating disorder that he struggled with as an endurance athlete and trying to give a voice to men as well and making sure that, that that's not stigmatized as well. And, and making sure that it's, you know, okay. People realize it's okay to talk about it as a guy. I think, you know, we focus a lot of times on women having eating disorders or women wanting to lose weight and these body image issues but men in endurance sports also have a, a huge issue there as well. Yeah, it's a great point. And I love your line, like just recognize it's okay to not be okay. Yeah, I think it's important then to be able to admit that to yourself, like have some self-awareness, like I'm not okay, you know, and be able to recognize that, that's a step. And then also I find that a lot of people – um, that do have an unhealthy relationship with food. Uh, they have a hard time giving themselves grace for eating things. So they have a lot of rules around food and, you know, like they, they can't have a cookie, they can't enjoy a glass of wine, etc. And, and when you get to that point and you're really, really restricting, uh, I think, I don't think that that is the best way to go, you know? And, and being able to recognize that there, there might be a, a problem there. You should be able to give yourself a little bit of grace and, and be able to enjoy food for what it is also as well as, you know, as fuel instead of just, um, you know, it, this evil thing or something, you know? Um, so, 
so when I'm working with people, I try to to change their their mindset a little bit, you know, and and try to think about um, how you know using food to nourish our bodies and allowing it to fuel our bodies for the things that we want it to do. Um, so again, changing that mindset a little bit is is beneficial, I think. We're having this conversation at a pretty interesting time of year, just after Christmas and just before New Year's, where a lot of folks are kind of doing the holiday eating thing and maybe drinking a little more than normal or eating a little less healthy and those kinds of things. I mean, any specific thoughts, advice, et cetera, on how to handle this kind of odd time of year. Yeah. And I think, again, going back to that um, restriction, I don't think is the answer. And I think that um, offering yourself, again, a little bit of grace and allowing yourself to have a cookie or have some dessert or have uh, some of these foods is honestly a healthier approach um, to eating around the holidays. And one thing I tell people that I'm working with is if you really want to, um, try and limit the food or something, uh, to help with their weight loss goals, then maybe just focus on portion size, but don't restrict things. Uh, because I think in the end it's going to come back and, and backfire, you know, um, I know for me, it's the same way. If I, if I were to say, I can't have any of these things, you know, what do you want those things? So um, I, I also work with people on like mindfulness when eating. So that's another thing that you can work on throughout the holiday season is, you know, am I really still hungry or not? Like checking in with yourself and saying, oh, what's my hunger level right now? You know, if I'm not really hungry, do I really need an extra plate of food? So, so I think a lot of us have also become out of touch with those hunger and fullness signals just because of all the busyness in our lives. And so uh, it might just be a simple thing where you just check in with yourself one time throughout your meal and, and see if you're still hungry or not. If you are, then still have some more food, you know? Turns out it's also winter uh, in this uh in this Northern hemisphere of ours. And um, so we've been talking a bit more about running in the winter. And, you know, I had a conversation with Maddie and Gordon at Blister about their own practices and, and what they do during this time. But I guess I'm curious about whether or not you think on the nutrition and dietary side of things, how much should we be thinking about changing stuff up in when we're running in the colder times of the year, you know, fueling components that need to change from, say, summer to winter or hydration. Any general thoughts or guidelines on that? Yeah. So I think that um, in particular with hydration, the cold air in, in the winter is, is definitely drier. Um, and so when we breathe in that cold air and our lungs warm the air, we kind of lose more moisture when we breathe out. Um, so you do tend to lose quite a bit of, uh, you know, your hydration needs or your fluids in your body, I guess. Um, so it's, it's important that, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I do have a harder time reminding myself to drink in the winter when I am out exercising. It just sounds unappealing. Um, and, and our thirst response tends to go down too. So having a plan, I think, is really important, uh, especially if you're doing like long ski tours or um, going out for a long run, things like that. Checking in with yourself, you know, every 30 minutes or every 15 minutes, whatever your, your set plan is. Um, and trying to force yourself a little bit to drink um, your hydration. Um, so 16 to 20 ounces per hour, again, is the recommended. It's oftentimes really hard for people to get that in if you aren't really trying to do that. Um, 
And then the other thing is in the winter when it's that cold, how do you keep your fluids from freezing? I know, especially with the Grand Traverse, that's such a big uh, puzzle for people. And so there's a couple of things. And one thing I actually did do this, uh, you can sew a little pouch on the front or like hook a little pouch on the front of your jacket um, and, and trying to, or your shirt and trying to keep that um, water close to your body uh, can really help. So keeping that uh, hydration mix water close to your core um, helps prevent the freezing. So wearing it kind of on the front instead of on your back can really help. Um, or if you have a water bottle and you're running outside, you know, like one of those handhelds, you can um, either wrap it with like some foam that you buy at the hardware store, or you could put it in, you know, a wool sock or something, just something to kind of keep it a little bit warmer. Um, and then, all, and then companies like uh, Scratch Labs, they make a uh, hydration mix that you can heat up and it's like a, a cider electrolyte mix, which is kind of nice. So you could do like a hotter beverage starting out, like especially if you're doing a run that's not going to be too long. Uh, doing something like that could be, could encourage intake as well and prevent freezing. Um, so, so those are definitely some things hydration wise. And then food wise, I say, you know, we do tend to actually burn a little bit more energy when we're exercising in the cold. Um, but it's not too significant. I mean, maybe, uh, a, a couple percentage, five to 10% more. Um, and, and so if you really just focus on your normal, um, getting in your, whatever your, uh, eating plan currently is for training. So, you know, if you take a gel every 30 minutes, then continue to just stick with that. I would say, you know, the biggest thing, again, I think is the hydration piece because our thirst response goes down in the cold and we oftentimes have a harder time reminding ourselves to take in those fluids. So not saying that the food's not important, but, it, but I do think that we oftentimes will remember, oh yeah, I need to be eating this gel every 30 minutes, but the hydration piece sometimes falls by the wayside a little bit more. Um, so, and then food wise, just again, just take the same things that you normally take. Well, Kylie, we have just, uh, we've talked about a lot of topics and some pretty big and deep ones. And so I guess I want to kind of say the floor is yours as we bring this conversation to a conclusion. Any final takeaways, um, or advice that you want to kind of leave us with here before we let you go? Yeah, I think that it's important to remember that nutrition itself is ever-changing and can be really complicated. And to not maybe let yourself get caught up in a lot of the, the fads without doing your own research or without working with someone like a dietitian. Um, I think it's important you know, if you want to just make a couple changes, look at your daily eating pattern and make sure that you're getting in the right amount of food to support your training. Make sure you're getting in a varied diet and, and just try and keep it simple. You know, I think that's what we really need to remember that, um, you know, just eating more whole foods and less processed foods, simple things like that. And small changes are really what can lead to the best performance results, in my opinion. Kylie, where are the best places for people to connect with you? Yeah, so my website is flynutrition.org. Um, you can also email me at kylie at flynutrition.org. And then I write articles for Trail Runner Magazine. So I have a bi-monthly column. It's Ask the Sports Dietitian. And so you can find those articles on Trail Runner Magazine's website. 
Um, and then I also have a, an Instagram account, Fly Nutrition 3. So if you want any, I do, you know, a couple times a week, I'll offer some really helpful nutrition tips that might resonate with you. This has been really fun. It's good things to be thinking about really at any time of year, but uh, I, I don't know, perhaps fittingly as we're coming into a new year and a new decade, it's a pretty good moment for us to think about topics like this and, and our practices, our daily practices. So um, appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, and talking to us about this. Oh, yeah. No, I really appreciate being on the show. And um, I really like to help people, again, try and simplify all the nutrition information out there. So any way I can do that is uh, welcome. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much. And enjoy your first 50K, which I'm going to put money down. I, I'm, I think you're going to get there. I'm not too worried about that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, good luck. Hopefully I cross that. <laughs> That's the, that'll be the fun part. Yeah. So um, go get that official ultra belt, right? So you can, you can join the ranks. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Um, <laughs> hey, thanks again. And we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Kylie for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then we'd encourage you to subscribe to Off the Couch, tell your friends about the show, and leave us a nice little rating in iTunes. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week in a brand new decade.